Hello everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free, Joshua Tree. We've spent the last four programs exploring the Sumerian myth of the goddess Inanna, queen of heaven and earth. Now, if you miss those programs or you want to listen to them again, you can find them on my site on bandcamp.com, where they're available to either stream or download. Because today, I want to talk a little bit more about Inanna and share with you the detail the moment in the story that resonates with me right now. For those of you who are new to this program, noticing that moment is the basic practice here on Myth in the Mojave, because attending to the detail that speaks to you is one of the ways that stories can help you, teach you, or heal you. The old myths and the stories that we share, the ones that have endured, are mirrors and teachers. And even the themes and the figures that we now reject illuminate the present moment. They show us the evolution in our relationship to the ideas and the values that they carry. That place for me the place where the myth of Inanna opens up is the very beginning of the story about her descent when we're told that Inanna turns her ear to the ground. This phrase, turned her ears to the ground, is the place that the story really gets moving for me. Now, I've worked with Anana's myths a number of times, and I have a deep affinity with this goddess. So let me start by sharing a little bit of that so that you have a sense of you know, where I'm coming from. To begin with, I love the way that she tends the tree that is torn from the banks of the Euphrates, replanting it in her own garden and ultimately using its body as the material for her ambitions, that is, her throne and her bed. This tree, as I read it, is Anana herself. It is her own being. She is a fully embodied intelligence, or in the words of Judy Gran, she is the mind inside nature. So I read the young goddess's fear of the creatures who then take up residence in her tree and try to prevent her from cutting it down as a foreshadowing of the dark aspects of self that the grown goddess will later assimilate with her descent. Anana opens up the concept then of feminine and woman for me, in very important ways. She has multifaceted powers and a complex role in Sumerian, really Middle Eastern society, because Astarte and Ishtar, 
and the many goddesses that they then gave birth to are also forms of Inanna. She's multiple. She is puzzling in her contradictions. There are things about her that you don't like. She enjoys war as much as she does lovemaking. This is a goddess who drinks beer. (laughs) And I revel in the transfer of power that occurs between her and the drunken god of wisdom, Anki. Inanna is a goddess, a woman, with a big heart, big ideas, and a big spirit in what is already becoming, 5,000 years ago, a man's world. Some of us who both love and study this story think that Inanna's many paradoxes reflect her ongoing historical battle with the gathering forces of patriarchy, forces that later succeeded, as we know too well, in suppressing the sublimely troubling, multifaceted divine feminine and reshaped her into pantheons of simpler and less threatening deities. How the truth contained in a goddess like Inanna has survived, like a rhizome in the soil, gives me hope. It's also a topic that's too big for me to address in this program, so I'll say this. In the image of the goddess Inanna, I recognize my own capacity to feel and act from a confidence in my own value and values. To love what I love, to rage in turn, and to make mistakes even regarding both of those impulses without diminishing myself through adherence to outer standards and expectations that don't serve me. Anana encourages me to not let the patriarchy make me small. The need for such a goddess, for a feminine face of the divine that is true to the complex beauty and awfulness, not only of the feminine, but of the great cosmic mystery, is as old as Anana's poems. If you want to investigate some of the background material yourself, check out a book called Anana, Lady of Largest Heart, Poems of the Sumerian High Priestess Enhudwana by Betty Deshong Medor. That's spelled M-E-A-D-O-R. Medor's engagement with Anana springs from ancient poems that were written about the goddess by the Sumerian poet Enhudwana, who was the high priestess to the moon god Nana, that's Anana's father, at his temple in the city of Ur around 2300 BCE. In her foreword to the book, Judy Gran, Judy Gran wrote the foreword, notes that Enhudwana wrote 1100 years before Homer and is the earliest known writer. That's right. The earliest known writer is a high priestess and poet from Sumeria 
whose record of her experience of the divine is here for us now. I recently returned to this book because, I'll admit, I've never read all of it. (laughs) The opening pages and the revelation that I just shared with you send me such shockwaves that I've barely dipped into the actual poetry. So I picked it up recently, and I thought, how did I find this book? And as I was wondering this to myself, I opened it up to find an inscription from my husband, the shepherd who gifted me with it. I often tell you the stories that I need. In fact, as I'm recording this program for you, I am hanging on that hook in Arishka Gill's throne room. I know that some of you listening are there too, and I appreciate the emails that you send me to share your experience. I also know that some of you were recently released or are on your way or want to be prepared. So here we go. The goddess Anana turned her ear to the ground. She had chosen all the circumstances of her outer life, and she was in midlife, as am I. Something below the surface caught her attention. There was some type of call. I find meaning in astrology, and for those of you who share this interest, let me tell you, The moon is in Scorpio at the top of my chart, and I have a loaded 12th house of the unconscious. So in a sense, I was born to plumb the depths. But being able and being willing are not the same thing. Anana appears to be both. She turns her ear to the ground. She listens. In Sumerian, the word ear also meant mind and also meant receptor of wisdom. The ear was considered to be the seat of intelligence. Our definitions today of ear describe an organ for hearing that has great sensitivity and the capacity for recognition, appreciation, and reproduction. We learn sounds through hearing them. Listening is, like seeing and the other senses, a way of understanding the world, of discriminating differences and subtleties. At the same time that you are permeated or entered by that which you perceive. The act of listening is a form of receptivity and the ear itself is a receptacle. It's something that's entered into and this connects the act of listening and the ear to the archetypal feminine. You can contrast that to uh, what's been called the masculine sense of seeing 
the penetrating gaze. So there's something inherently uh, feminine and actively still in listening as Anana listens. Ear to the ground. Now, that phrase, ear to the ground, is a figure of speech today. It means paying attention, listening for clues. And when I hold all of this together, the still receptive attention, I'm reminded of what James Hillman said, that careful attention to the particularities what he called notitia, is a deep form of love, a soulful love. And it leads me to consider love as attunement. (laughs) Now, as a friend observed, turning your ear to the ground is also a way to hear what's coming. (laughs) You can think of the Native Americans who listened for the sound of enemy hoofbeats or the sound of a messenger by listening to the rumble in the earth. This is a unique way to begin a journey to the underworld. Let's contrast that with another myth about a woman who makes a journey to the underworld, the Greek myth of Persephone. In the case of Persephone, we have this innocent young woman who's still living with her mother, the goddess Demeter. One day, this lovely young woman is in a sunny meadow picking flowers with her girlfriends, and she sees an especially lovely bloom, one that actually is made especially for her by the earth. And when she reaches out to pluck this flower the earth opens up at her feet and up from the chasm comes her uncle Hades in his dark chariot. He pulls her close and takes her down with him before her screams stop bouncing from the hillsides. Now, did Persephone collude with Hades consciously or unconsciously in the later seduction of the six pomegranate seeds, seeds that she ate? that bound her forever to the underworld? Was her an abduction an unmitigated tragedy, a complete travesty for her, as it was for her mother? The story of this myth is primarily preoccupied with the wandering grief and anger of Demeter, who withholds green life from the earth until she is reunited with her. Who would Persephone have been, I wonder, if not the queen of the underworld and then an equal partner with her, with her mother, Demeter, in the sacred rites at Eleusis? For centuries, people were initiated into the Eleusinian ministries and lost their fear of death. Persephone was abducted. Maybe she also became who she was meant to be through that, In any event, this is very powerful stuff, and these are big questions, the questions that surround the meaning of Persephone's abduction, 
This is a very potent image and experience shared by many of us, male as well as female, about the underworld descent, about being snatched and dropping into the dark. The goddess Anana, though, is not virginal, not innocent, not inexperienced, and she chooses to make her journey. This phrase, ear to the ground, activates the part of me that longs for intense experience. The root of the word experience is experiment. I get that experimental sense from Anana's preparations with Ninshaber. This journey down is a conscious undertaking. And although the goddess has an explicit agenda to comfort her sister Arishkagil because her sister's husband, the Bull of Heaven, has recently died, Anana isn't sure what will happen or what will be involved. She's never been down there before. And so she asks Ninshaber to keep watch at her point of departure for three days. And she also tells her friend where to go for help if she doesn't return. I feel the call to experience as experiment in Anana's reaction to the cool and honestly unsettling reception that she receives then at her sister's first gate. The watchman doesn't know who she is, despite her upper world prominence and dominance. And then she's forced to give up some of her powers to enter. Why doesn't she turn around and go home? Surely that was an option. And at the second gate, and at the third gate, and the fourth. Although Anana protests at each of the seven gates, she allows herself to be stripped of all of her above-ground powers of her above-ground identity, of the roles that she has played. She lets go. Did you ask yourself at this point in the story why she didn't turn around and go back? Why she didn't just say, screw it, or really, since this is Anana we're talking about, screw you, and head back for the surface? I mean, who would have been the wiser if she had aborted the trip and set aside her mission? Only Ninshaber knew of her plans to go into the underworld, and as we later discover, very few cared that she went. But Anana goes on despite the gathering darkness. When I search this place in myself, I find pride at first, for sure, self-confidence and curiosity. And under those feelings, there is a kind of terrible fascination, a compulsion 
perhaps a longing to know what will come next. Terror and awe are primal responses to the mystery. Sometimes this urge to experience this gets labeled as morbidity, but I think it's something else, a magnetic pull towards the deepest mystery of the self, a need to truly get to the bottom of it. This is the natural path of soul. A spiraling movement down, down from the perspective of the daily sunny conscious, every, anyway, that habitual way that we adopt to be in the world, is a spiraling movement down into the depths where a different type of logic replaces the rationality and morality of the upper realms and the definitions of success and accomplishment that are embraced there. Soul. Soul is a capacity. It's not a thing. Soul is the imaginative ability to perceive what is below the surface, to understand the symbols and the metaphors that are the language of psyche and the ground of reality. It is soul that brings us to initiatory thresholds, even those trials that are part of spiritual growth and our spiritual aspirations. We cannot go there without the aid of soul and the soul impulse. Like plants, we have to put down roots before we can really reach the clouds. So Anana is led on a soul journey down into the dry, dark underworld that belongs to her sister, Arishkagal. I am, as I said earlier, making my own such journey. And from this place that I have been hanging, I wonder if this is the place where you can grasp the otherwise invisible choices that are made when you decide to be a hero to fit yourself into the solar mode, wielding that masculine sword of reason, cutting and separating and surmounting. There is a time and a place for that, but life requires more of us. Is this the place you must visit, I wonder, to fully understand the feminine? It's funny, you know, I usually record these programs for you during the day, but this one wants to take shape at night. How do you put your ear to the ground? This, I have come to understand, is a good metaphor for the practice of following what calls you in any story, that detail that catches your attention that I was talking about at the beginning. It is often a call to depth. So how do you do this? Well, 
You start by allowing it to be significant, by holding it in your mind's eye and visiting it regularly. For a long time, I tried to avoid this tug. I succumbed to the common fantasy that it was a problem that I needed to solve rather than an invitation. So you start by allowing it to be significant. You notice when that thing, those words or that image is at your elbow and you greet it. You reflect on the story and gather the reflections of others who have worked with it. The internet is an amazing tool in this regard, and I hope that I am offering such a resource in creating Myth in the Mojave for you. Find images that resonate with you. For example, I keep imagining Anana's ear as an ear of corn with a few missing kernels that have fallen into the earth to incubate as seeds of what will come next. You also want to entertain the memories that come and tend the dreams. Journal with them. Journaling is an irreplaceable tool for finding meaning and perspective and for keeping the proper distance from the material. What you're being shown, what is bubbling up for you, can't inform you if you identify too closely with it. Writing helps you keep the necessary separation. Creating a moniker, a named figure, is also good. Now, I realize this may sound weird, but years ago, at a different time and stage of life, I went on a wilderness meditation retreat, and as part of this retreat, I was given a piece of soapstone to carve. I coaxed a very rough figure of a kneeling woman in profile from the stone. Later, I was asked about her, and I said, Oh, this is she who does. Now, where did that come from? I didn't know then. I still don't know. But it was right. I felt it was right, and I recognized myself in her. And she who does has helped me understand the active side of myself. Now I am looking for she who listens, or rather, I am listening for her. I find her in my enjoyment of music and of silence. I find her in my practice of sitting, of stopping whatever it is that I am doing to listen to the birds. I find her in the attention that I bring to conversation. I find her in my memories of the early days with my husband. Separated by hundreds of miles, we met every night in long phone conversations and knew each other first by voice. In fact, when he then made plans to come and visit me in California, I realized that I might not recognize him at the busy Los Angeles airport, set aside my embarrassment, and asked him to send me 
a recent photo. I was thinking about that lately and laughing because the photo that he sent me had his face almost completely in shadow. I also find her, this Catherine, with her ear turned to the ground. In the experience of creating Myth in the Mojave for you, and the knowledge that we meet in the act of listening. What I love most about this myth of the descent of Inanna is that for all of her powers, the goddess does not save herself. She's rescued by a loyal friend and two tiny creatures made of dirt filings by Anki, the god of wisdom, who instructs them to express empathy for Arishkagil. These are the players in this beautiful narrative. To make this journey and to learn this firsthand, we must tether ourselves to the world. No one can go there for us, but others must be there for us. Anana had Ninshiber waiting. You know, I think of, of C.G. Jung, who also answered a call from the depths. He spent years on his journey, and he gave it form in the Red Book. During this time, he said he kept himself tied to the world through his work and his family. You need someone who understands your necessity to the world and can communicate it with love to whoever needs to hear it. And you need a practice that helps you hear this message yourself. What I hear in this story, through the actions of the goddess and her companions, is this. Anana is saved by life itself, by the cycles that move through us, sustain us, and ultimately claim us. Our conscious journey through this cycle is fueled and completed by compassion. We do not break it or change it. We are the ones transformed. The rules of the underworld are absolute. Or as the poet Rilke wrote, what is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. To turn your ear to the ground is to bring yourself into relationship with the deepest mysteries of your life. I want to end today with these words from Diane Ackerman, who could have been meditating on Anana when they came to her. She writes, Deep down, we know our devotion to reality is just a marriage of convenience, and we leave it to the seers, the shamans, the ascetics, the religious teachers, the artists among us, to reach a higher state of awareness from which they transcend our rigorous but routinely analyzing senses and become closer to the raw experience of nature that pours into the unconscious, the world of dreams, the source of myth. This is the reason to go, my friends. That's it for me. Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. 
Feel free to contact me if you have questions about today's program or mythology in general. And make use of the archived Myth in the Mojave programs that are available on Bandcamp. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life. (laughs) ¶¶